Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. We are in Mark 11, starting in verse 27, and we'll read through 12.12. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we're here this morning for you, for what you want to do, and for what you want to speak to us, for who you are, just to gather around you in thought and in study and worship. It's our honor, Lord. And so... Uh, as we're here, God, it's our, it's our prayer each and every week. Um, it's even our practice to, to pause like this and pray, not to become so religiously accustomed to church and hearing and standing and sitting and singing, but God, to, to pause and center ourselves for a second. There's so much going on in the world, in our own worlds, in our minds, in our lives, so... Holy Spirit, um, would you just right now come and just calm our hearts and minds before you? Thank you that this is a place where we can just pause and give attention to what matters most, your word. And so, Jesus, that's why we're here. You are our cornerstone. We sung it, and we want to live in that truth. And so today, we ask that you would take us deeper into that. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence Thank you for your power. 
And we invite you to move in this time. And, and God, we invite you to speak to us as you give us ears to hear what you want to say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I just want to say, you know, the standing for the reading of God's word, it's called formational liturgy. Okay, here's the big idea. This has nothing to do with the sermon. This is extra. All right, formational liturgy is these practices that we take part in each and every Sunday to form who we are. And I just love that it's working. I love that everyone just naturally was like, we're supposed to stand right now. Let's stand up. And it was uh, just anyway, for me, I was like, I love it. Okay. I'm glad I meant that much to you too. Um, you know, it's the honor of God's word. It's a good thing. Okay. Well, uh, good morning. Yeah, good to be with you guys. How's everybody doing? Okay. Yeah, that's good. I mean, you don't have to be, right? It's like, how's everyone doing? Great, I guess, you know. Um, well, if anything, hi. <laughs> uh, it's good to have you guys here with us this morning. And as Dan said, um, uh, if you're new, we want to give you a special welcome and uh, just encourage that you don't leave here without making some step of connection. Um, my name's Andrew, and I'm uh, really thankful to be back uh, into uh, the Gospel of Mark here this Sunday. Uh, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark for, uh, oh my goodness, I want to say like six or seven months now. We started in February, and here we are in September, so I guess that would be eight months. And uh, we have been exploring the way of Jesus. That's what this study is all about. That's what we're all about, the way of Jesus, not just the truth and the life of Jesus. We want the truth and life, but we also want the way of Jesus. We want to know his way so that we don't assume his way, and we also want to go his way. And so that's what the Gospel of Mark gives us. It is a biography written on the actions and the life and the words and the ways of Jesus. And each week, as we get into a different section, we're looking at a different aspect of his way. All right, and so this morning, as kind of has been our tradition here for eight months, just like you know to stand up, you know what's coming here. Uh, the way of Jesus here in Mark 11 through chapter 12 is the way, we're going to talk about this, the way Jesus disrupted. We have disrupting Jesus here in Mark 11. Remember, Jesus is here, and he's in his last week of his earthly life. You remember that? Mark 1 through 10 is three years the final three years of his ministry. And then once you get into chapter 11, we have entered into Passion Week uh, from the Latin Passio or Suffering Week where Jesus is finishing his race. He is um, charting towards the end of his earthly course just prior, of course, to his resurrection and ascension. But that's what we have here. We have the final few days in the life of Jesus. This is the most important week in the life of any human in history. And we're here on a Tuesday. Good morning, happy Sunday. We're going up on a Tuesday here in Mark 11. And in Mark 11 on this Tuesday, Jesus is getting into some good trouble. He's disrupting. Now, the word disruption has with it all sorts of different connotations. Uh, but the idea of disrupting, of course, we're talking here about the Son of God bringing a disruption. We'll say this. We want to give some clarity here so that we're not too confused. Disruptions, we'll say, generally come in two forms. There are negative disruptions in life, and then we'll say there are necessary disruptions in life. We're all familiar with negative disruptions. All right, Negative disruptions are those things which disrupt in such a way that they interrupt what matters most, right? Or they distract 
from what's important. You know, no one really told me this. Um, as I was setting out to start a church, plant a church, pastor, let alone preach in a middle school auditorium, that one of the main skills that you need to develop as a pastor, preacher, and communicator is how to navigate disruptions. This is, I mean, this is not, a, in case you didn't know, this isn't a church building. All right, we didn't have, there's no steeple when you came in. There's a gymnasium right there. There's an incredible kitchen over there that I'm sure that, that serves up some hot deliciousness Monday through Friday. Uh, but here we turn this into a house of worship, and we don't have walls. We got some pipe and drape. We do the best we can to section off the sanctuary. Um, but it's not without its interruptions. You know, it's one room here. Uh, I think some of the best training I've gotten for this job is youth ministry. Youth ministry, how do you define youth ministry? Trying to disciple through disruptions. That's youth ministry in a nutshell. Okay, I remember as clear as day, one of the most difficult disruptions I ever had to navigate. I would say this, I didn't do too well, but here's what happened. I was leading a youth communion service, trying to take some youth in the service through a time of reflection, the body and blood of Jesus is remembering the cross. And I didn't have a, it was probably about 80 to 100 students in a, a little portable. That was my youth room. We called it the tabernacle. All right, you get that? Anyway, nonetheless. Doing our communion time, and you know, I didn't have a worship leader to lead like a gospel-centered reflection song. I had the, the next best option. If you don't have a worship leader, Spotify. I had Spotify, which is a music streaming platform. And we were playing some, like, I think it was like a Phil Wickham uh, uh, gospel song, Blood of Jesus kind of song. And on the Spotify account, it turns out, after even leading the kids to really get a moment to get them to center their lives and reflect on this Sunday morning, Fortunately, though we press play on that song, I had forgotten to renew my subscription. Disruption is coming here in a second. And I was on the free trial version. And if you know, how many of you guys, by the way, live for free trials? You got to set the reminders to cancel them. Free tip, okay? It's like, we, we spent $2,000 last year in things I don't remember signing up for. Anyway, forgot to cancel. Okay, forgot to renew the subscription. And what happens when you don't renew the subscription the free mode is you, you actually get most of the same songs, but you get them with ads that disrupt communion, okay? That disrupt, so I, I, clear as day, we're there. I'm like, wow, Lord, you're ministering right now. You're working. I can't believe the kids aren't really on their phones. And then all of a sudden, a voice cuts into the music. A voice comes over the speaker as the kids there are taking communion. And the voice says this. Would you like a delicious sirloin? It's a Texas Longhorn. Or Texas, what's it called? Longhorn Steakhouse. Ad. Some of the kids were like, Lord, is that, are you? Mom, I think God spoke to me. During communion, the veil was thin between heaven and earth, and God invited me to eat a steak. Now, so it was, it was so, like, so you're laughing. Imagine a room full of, you know, 80 to 100 high school students. Communion's over. Actually, there was no getting them back. I literally was just like, you're dismissed, everybody. Just go. Please throw out your communion elements on the way, your, your cups on the way out. Anyway, it's, that was free there. I'm sure we've all had some form of negative disruption that distracted us from what was mattering most. Not all disruptions are negative. There are 
negative disruptions, but there are some disruptions that aren't negative, but they're necessary. They're necessary disruptions. Um, just yesterday, I'm cleaning out the garage, the kind of usual Saturday task. It's what I do probably every other week. And I was kind of on a mission to get this thing clean. And, you know, we're kind of just one of those Saturdays where it looks like it's going to rain, where the kids are playing. You'd like for them to clean, but they're mostly playing. And uh, I get a text from Roberto, my brother-in-law. There's some waves. Judah got a nice new shortboard, new surfboard. It's time to surf. And so we head out, and it turned out to be uh, just really beautiful. There's jellyfish on the water, so we got in and got right out. But I would call that a necessary disruption. It was something that was like, you know what, I really want to do this, and I'm focused on this, but I get to spend some time with you to get to go out in the ocean, get to surf a little bit. Maybe as a parent, you've had a necessary disruption before. I don't know if you've had this. I've had this where my kids disrupt me when I'm handling serious business. You know what I'm saying? Checking the newest thing, replying to the newest DM, refreshing my feed for the thousandth time, unfortunately. And my kids will come up to me. And have you ever had this necessary disruption? Daddy or mommy, will you play with me? I can't tell you how many times that's disrupted my plan in a good way. Necessary disruptions. Listen closely. Spiritually speaking, I want you to hear this. There are necessary disruptions that God himself will not only allow but instigate in our lives. Have you ever been disrupted by the Lord? Have you ever had God show up to whatever order or system you had going and he completely interrupted what you had and sidetracked your plan for something better or greater? This is a necessary disruption. Let me say it this way. Sometimes the most gracious and loving thing that God can do in our lives is disrupt our own disordered operation. Disordered operation. You ever felt like your life has gotten disordered? You ever been there? Not that your, your life is filled with all sorts of wicked and evil things, but you've just become disordered to where you're kind of at the center. And your plans and your purposes are slowly taking over. And that's a great time to say, God, would you disrupt this? Sometimes the most loving and gracious thing that God can do is disrupt. Bring a necessary disruption to the disordered operation of our lives. Now, let me say this. In light of Mark chapter 11, this is exactly what's just happened here in this chapter. This is exactly what Jesus has just done. Mark chapter 11 is Jesus disrupting the corrupted system and operation of worship in Israel. And, you know, talk about a disruption. Jesus cleansing the temple. Jesus bringing uh, a sense of, of fiery disruption to a disordered operation. Uh, th this was quite the disruption. This is the kind of disruption, like if it happened here, we'd call security for that kind of thing. I mean, imagine this. Like, imagine right now we're here with our worship. This is what happened. And Jesus starts flipping over the coffee table. Or someone comes in and they start kicking over our banners. I mean, this is disruptive Jesus. Now, it's important to point out that Jesus isn't disrupting the temple, right? It tells us he's driving people out. He's flipping over chairs and tables, He's not doing this for the sake of disruption, right? Jesus isn't making a mess to make a point, to get attention. Jesus is disrupting that system in order to, listen closely, reorder it or repurpose it back to its intended use, right? He's got a plan in mind. It's not make a mess to make a point. It's not disrupt in order to disrupt. It's I've got to reorder things around 
their proper use. The temple, at this point, had become a marketplace. Not a house of prayer for all nations, for everyone to come and commune with the living God who loves them, knows them, and created them. But the temple had become a marketplace for ministers to monetize the ministry. It had become corrupted. So Jesus is bringing things back to their proper place. In fact, it's not here in Mark, what we studied last week with Jesus cleansing the temple, but Matthew tells us that after Jesus goes into this disordered thing and brings a disruption and, and sets things right and drives out the sinfulness, Matthew 21 tells us that then, I love this, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Isn't that cool? Do you get the picture here? There's like religious sinful clutter in the house of God, keeping people who need Jesus from Jesus. So Jesus comes in and he disrupts this whole thing so that, listen, the kingdom of God can break in, so that people can get what they need from Jesus. What's church about? Church is about us coming to get what we need from Jesus, to come as we are, blind and lame as we are, broken as we are, in need as we are, to come poor in spirit and say, Jesus, would you be what I need? Jesus comes to bring things right, to set things straight. This is a permanent thing that he goes on to do. The temple is not going to become necessary in a few days. As Jesus is going to lay down his life and he's going to send and establish his church, among which he's building his own new temple in lives that he's changed and transformed. Jesus, it's really beautiful. Here in this disruption, Jesus is doing away with religion to establish his kingdom. Um, this is what we want, by the way. Don't we want this as a church? Like, I, I think we just have to be honest and recognize our tendency to get things disordered in church, to get things disordered in our lives. You're, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit that God wants to use to connect people to him, right? It's our lives as well. And it's like, it's one of the best prayers we can pray is just, God, Anytime my life becomes religious, anytime my life becomes something that's blocking people's access to you, disrupt it. Just come disrupt this system in order to use me for something greater. Just a really beautiful thing. Now, as awesome as this disruption is and as necessary as it was, it turns out, listen closely, it turns out that there's a few people who aren't stoked about it. There's a couple people who aren't too content or happy or appreciative of this disruption. We meet them in Mark eleven twenty seven. 27, the first verses you read. Uh, by the way, this is the next day after Jesus cleanses the temple. Jesus is amazing. He's like, I'm coming back to the temple. I love this. He's not like, oh, man, I really, things really got out of hand yesterday. Probably better not show up for a couple days. He's like, no, I'm coming back. They go back to Jerusalem. And he, where does he go? He goes right back into the heart of where worship happens. He goes right back into the temple. And who's there waiting for him? Who's there waiting to chat with him? Well, it's the religious leaders of the day, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And let me tell you, these people, they are not happy with Jesus. They don't like what he just did. Y yeah, okay, uh, God's will is being done. People are being healed. People are being touched. Relationship with God is being restored. The kingdom of God is advancing in people's lives, but it's happening at the expense of their pride. It's happening at the expense of their sovereignty. It's happening at the expense of their position and their authority. 
and their, their plans. That's, that's usually how it goes. Usually the advancement of God's will often has to do with the surrender of ours. You know what I'm saying? Whenever God's will is advancing, usually my will is surrendering. And they don't really like that trade-off. They don't like that that's happening. So they're going to confront Jesus. And here's why. Because what he's doing is threatening to them. It's threatening to them. They're the ones in charge. They're the spiritual influencers. They're the ones who are there to connect people to God. And so Jesus is threatening that. And so how do they approach him? What angle do they come at Jesus through? We'll see. They come at him to confront him through the angle of authority. Mark eleven twenty eight. 28. They come to Jesus. By the way, this isn't, I don't have um, like my classic three points kind of a thing. This is not Southern Baptist at all. This is just straight up, let's study the Bible today. Cool? All right, cool. All right. They come to him and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Jesus, who gave you permission to do what you're doing? Who gave you this authority to do these things? You know, Jesus' actions are authoritative. Jesus himself carried with him. Okay, Jesus didn't have the systemic or cultural positional authority of the Pharisees, but he, can I tell you something? He had something greater. Like maybe right now you're like, I don't have positional authority in my workplace or in my church or, or wherever. Jesus had something greater. It's called moral authority. Positional authority is where, like, you have authority and people do what you say because of your position. Moral authority is people, like, want to follow you, and they're inspired to follow you, and they honor you because of the way you live. This is what Jesus had. I mean, we know he had all, all authority in heaven on earth. But culturally speaking, Jesus operates with a moral authority. He teaches with authority. He drives out demons with authority over the demonic. Jesus is carrying himself as a man of authority. Authority, and they're looking on, and Jesus, does, he didn't come up in their ranks of their rabbinical system, and, and, and he doesn't fit the mold. He didn't study at the seminaries that they went to. You know, He didn't pass the tests they went through. He didn't come through the conveyor belt of ministry. So they're like, where'd you get this authority from? Now, really what they're saying is, can I tell you what they're saying here? They're saying this. Who do you think you are? The Messiah? You know? What do you think, you're the Messiah or something? It's like, yeah, that's who Jesus is. Who do you think you are? You see, culturally speaking, we're the ones in charge. We're the gatekeepers of spiritual life. We're the ones that God has sent and called and put in this position. And so they're challenging him, saying, who gave you permission to do what you're doing, to carry yourself like this? Now, I want to say there's even more to it, actually, than just this question. I want, I want you to remember, that, the, and Mark has been telling us this, up until this point, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, this is not just some like casual, socially awkward, threatening situation with someone at work where you're like, mm, I don't like you. It's not like that. Um, at this point, these religious leaders are set on murdering Jesus. That's what they want to do. That's their goal. That's their mission in life is killing Jesus. They, they've been scheming. Chapters ago, they begun to scheme about how they might kill him. And, and they're looking, actually, in this question, they're looking for a way to kind of get off with doing that. Uh, there was a, a rule in the Mishnah, a, Jewish, um, a, a, Jew, a, book of, a form of Jewish literature that accompanied the Torah that these rabbis would, would consult for big decisions and kind of fine detail decisions. And there were, in the Mishnah, there was a clearance that was given 
of execution if someone is doing ministry in Jerusalem under the authority of some other foreign god. So if they're, doing, if they're ministering under some sort of pagan authority, authority that's, that's not Yahweh, they could actually legally and rightfully execute that person. And so that's what they're actually trying to do with Jesus. They're trying to catch him to kill him. That's literally what they're doing here. It's a big question. Now, it's, it's interesting, right? Who gave you your authority? Like, do you know? Who, they don't know who they're talking to, right? Like, this is, you ever seen the show Undercover Boss? This is Undercover Boss. This is Undercover God. He's got a, he's got a, he's got a mustache on making a sub, you know? What could Jesus say here? Jesus could say what he told his disciples in Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. There's no higher authority but God, and I am. I am. I am he. Notice how Jesus responds, though. Jesus, Jesus puts the capital B in undercover boss. Check us out. Jesus answers them, and here's what he says. I will ask you one question, you answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay, paraphrase. Um, okay, good question. I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Is that fair? He makes a deal. And he asks them a question. He goes, okay, I'll answer your question about my authority if you answer me a question about John the Baptist's authority. This is geni the genius of Jesus here. He brings up Jesus' own cousin who was beheaded by Herod just about a year prior, John the Baptist. Uh, we, we study John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1, okay? So um, and just to remind you about John the Baptist, the, the cousin of Jesus. Um, John the Baptist, let me give you the three things. We went over this in Mark 1, but just like this is just a recap. Uh, John the Baptist, his ministry, his manner, and his message. Three things that you need to know about John the Baptist. Also that he was the cousin of Jesus, and he um, was beheaded and served on a buffet plate. It's pretty rad, but... The ministry of John the Baptist is the most important. John the Baptist had a ministry of preparation. It's important to know that when Jesus came on the scene, we study this, Jesus doesn't drop out of thin air. Like, oh, Messiah, what's that? Oh, you're claiming to be him? No, John the Baptist comes prior to Jesus' coming to prepare the way and to prepare the hearts of people to receive what, what's coming, the ministry of the, of the Messiah. So John the Baptist had a ministry of preparation, calling people to repentance, calling people to bear fruit worthy of repentance, calling people to be baptized, something reserved exclusively for Gentiles who convert to Judaism. He's calling Jews, be cleansed, of, be cleansed, repent, get your heart right with God. He had a ministry of preparation. I, what I love about John the Baptist, you might know this already, this guy, John the Baptist, he had a crazy, cool manner of life. He is a wild man, okay? Bear grills in the first century is what I want you to think of. He ate uh, uh, wild honey and locusts. So you guys are like, oh, cool, is that organic? Like, where do I get that? Is that wild honey? They have that at Whole Foods? He wore camel's hair, leather belt. I mean, this guy, like, what you say about that for John the Baptist is not go be a really weird person. That's not the point of John the Baptist. Go be weird, okay? John the Baptist was um, unapologetically, authentically himself. That's what I love about him. This is a great model for our lives, by the way. What do we exist to do? What's our ministry? It's to pre prepare people to know Jesus. What's our manner of life? Be authentically who God made you to be. Don't be, da don't be uh, David trying to wear Saul's armor. 
Don't be, you know, don't be a 21st century Christian trying to dress like John the Baptist, you know. His ministry, his manner, his message. What was his message? His message was simple. It was Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There's a great interaction that John the Baptist has with the Pharisees in John 2. They come to him. They investigate this man who's baptizing people. And he's like, he's like Jesus. He's got crazy spiritual influence outside of the system. And they come to him. They say, who are you? And his response is, I'm not Jesus. I love that. Who, who do you think you are? Not Jesus. That's all I know. I'm just not Jesus. <laughs> You're some kind of Christian? No, I'm not. I am not Jesus. Trust me, right? I love that. John was all about who Jesus was and who he wasn't in comparison to him. His whole message was, Jesus, don't you love John 3.30? You ever heard this verse? He must, this is John the Baptist. Right? This is quoting John the Baptist. Okay, He must increase, but I must decrease. This is, this is John's whole life and ministry and message. Is I've got to get out of the way so that people can see Jesus. Sometimes ministry is about how can I stand in the spotlight with Jesus? But for John, it was, I got to get into the dark behind the spotlight to point the attention on Jesus. My whole life, my whole life is about making much of Jesus. Which is so contrary to our flesh and our culture, which is how do I make much of myself? Got to make much of me. Got to make my name great. And John was like, no, I'm just here to make much of Jesus. Now, John the Baptist, he met his fateful end being beheaded by a pagan, wicked ruler, Herod. But only after bringing great spiritual influence to the nation and doing his job to prepare the way for Jesus. And so this is who Jesus, they're asking him about his authority. This is who Jesus is going to go back to. Okay, well, tell me about John, whose whole life was about me and pointing to me and preparing the way for the Messiah. His ministry, that's what he's saying here, the baptism of John. He's talking about his spiritual authority. Was it, and he gives kind of two options for John's ministry, and he's talking about himself as well. Was his authority from heaven or from men? This is really interesting. Jesus kind of draws a line in the sand. He's like, there's two kinds of authority, right? Two kinds of spiritual authority. You, you could say there's heavenly authority that's simply God-appointed authority, God-anointed authority. You're doing the thing that God has called you to do. That's how you get heavenly authority. Do the thing that God has called you to do. And then there's earthly authority from men, which is self-appointed, self-anointed. You're not doing the thing that God's called you to do. You're doing the thing that you want to do because of what you can get out of it. And the Pharisees, it's interesting, they had their own system that determined who was God-appointed or who was self-appointed. They had their own system that said, here's who's God-anointed and here's who's self-anointed. And they had their schools and they had their whole, whole thing. Now, John the Baptist, like Jesus, didn't fit into the box or flow with the system. Let me say that again. John the Baptist or Jesus didn't fit in the box, nor did they flow in the system of spiritual influence and meaningful ministry in that context. By the way, have you ever felt like you don't fit in the system? Anybody else? Just me. Good. A couple of you guys were like, I don't feel like I fit in the system. I, I, I so don't fit in it, I'm afraid to raise my hand, Okay. Like, sorry, let me, like, could I share a little bit? Like, I feel this way all the time. I felt this way my whole life. You know, I grew up in a tradition of ministry that its blessing was also its curse. 
The blessing of my tradition in ministry is like anybody can serve in ministry. The curse of my tradition in ministry was anybody can serve in ministry. You know what I mean? But I, I receive the blessing of that. I receive the blessing of people saying, hey, you're, you're 20 years old. You, you should be in the youth ministry. <laughs> we're we're going to empower you to lead and serve because we see God's, God's hand on your life. Well, and then parents come up to me like, who are you? I'm Andrew. Hi. You know? <laughs> big, big ministry boy. You know, like, like what sort of, what, what sort of credentials, what sort of like, what reasons do you have to do this? And, and I re- was like, honestly, I was asking God the same thing. Like, it's funny you say that. I read First Timothy that he counted me faithful in grace and placed me in ministry. I feel like Paul, who's like least of all, unworthy to even be called a child of God. But his grace toward me was abundant. So you just need grace. You need to, God calls you. Right? People have left Solus. They're like, you didn't, Andrew, do you guys know this? Andrew Lundy at Solus Church, you know he didn't go to seminary? I knew it. I knew it. Now, I'm not against, by the way, healthy systems of discipleship and training. Like, I don't, like, uh, I grew up again in a tradition where uh, the, uh, the, it was seminary, was also called cemetery. It's like where your heart and brain goes to die spiritually. And I don't, I'm not going to say that. Uh, Proverbs says, I'm not affirming that. Proverbs says, get understanding, get knowledge. Um, you, you know, to do the job well, you know, being called but being equipped to do it faithfully is two different things. So um, th- there's time that goes by to, be, to study, to show yourself approved. But I can resonate with not fitting into the box because today we have, there's kind of like modern systems of spiritual authority. You go to this school, you get this degree, and if you get this degree, you have heavenly authority. And, and there's, there could be a dangers to both sides of it because the other extreme is like, I don't need authority, man. That's right, I needed this message. I'm so sick of authority, modern authority, submitting to it. It's like, well, okay, let's come back to center. Let's come back to scripture, which calls for a healthy balance of both here. But, but the principle is the same with, with, with John the Baptist. He, him and Jesus, listen, they didn't fit into the box or flow with the system of spiritual influence in their context. But he was the man that God called. That's it. He was the man that God called. You go, I don't really feel equipped or I don't feel like I'm prepared to do this. Has God called you? That's the question. If he's called you to it, he'll get you through it. We know the classic ism, right? He doesn't call the equipped. He faithfully equips the callings of those that he is, has called himself to be used for great things. John was a called man. And let me say this. John was of heaven. Like John, if there's anybody who was, whose ministry was of, of heaven, it was John the Baptist. Jesus said that he's the greatest man born of woman. This guy's ministry was all about Jesus. And, and one of the ways you could know that John and, and Jesus' ministry, one of the ways you knew that they were of heaven was because the integrity of their lives and the fruit of their ministry gave evidence. Let me say that again. We know that John the Baptist was of heaven because of the integrity of his life and the fruit of his ministry. That's what Jesus said to do. Jesus like, don't pay attention to a piece of paper. What's the integrity of their life? What's their character? Who are they? Discern. Examine the fruit. There's, there's clear evidence. So Jesus says, what about John? 
is he heavenly sent or is he self-authorized? That's, that's the question he's getting at. So you tell me, Pharisees. You tell me, religious leaders. John the Baptist, he didn't come up in your ranks. Was he self-appointed or was he heavenly sent? Now, this is a beautiful, beautiful response. Because it's like, um, you know, it's like you, we watch America's Funny Some Videos because it's, like it's funny when people fall over. Okay, this is what, that's what's about to happen. Okay, they're about to fall over and it's okay to laugh. Okay, it says this. And they reason among themselves. It actually says that they discussed among themselves. I picture like family feud. I'm like, okay, one second. And they're over here. You know? Steve Harvey's like, I need an answer. Okay? And they go, if we say that John the Baptist is from heaven, which it looks like he was, okay, they will say, or Jesus will say, well, then why didn't you believe him? We're pegged. Because he testified of me, of Jesus, right? Testified of Jesus. So if we say yes... He's from heaven, we're kind of stuck there and we're accountable to his testimony that we've rejected. But if instead we say from men, ooh, our approval ratings will go down. Because everybody loves John the Baptist and they feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they're kind of stuck in this in-between ground of I can't go either way because it's going to cost me something. This is the the moral of the story. I'm unwilling to face up to the truth because of what it will cost me. So they answered and they said to him, these are, the, these are the religious elite of the day. And by the way, um, this rarely ever came out of a spiritual leader's mouth in that culture. We don't know. Because they're the ones that are supposed to know it all. Jesus got them. They're stuck. They're pegged. They can see. They go, we, we don't know. They lie through their teeth and say, we don't know. We don't know. Now, notice Jesus' response. He answers and says to them, now, notice what he says. He says, neither, that's a key word, neither will I tell you the truth. You see that? Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He's not just saying, hey, if you don't answer my question, I won't answer yours. He's saying, if you won't tell me the truth that you know, I'm not going to tell you the truth either. You can't handle the truth. Because it's staring you in the eyes. But you're willfully blind. That's what's happening here. I don't know. IDK. Now, let me say this. Um... When it comes to knowing the truth about Jesus, there is such a thing as genuinely not knowing. Can we just say that? Like, I think this will inform our evangelism to recognize that there's people out there that are genuinely seeking to know the truth, and they don't need to be beat over the head with, yeah, you do. It's like, well, there's a such thing as as genuinely seeking. I want to know. Okay? That's not what's going on here. We know that this I don't know is a dishonest IDK. All right? The truth is not IDK. The truth, the truth is IDC. It's not that I don't know. It's that I don't really care enough to surrender to the truth. Um, the issue was their unwillingness to acknowledge the truth that was before them, whether it was John or Jesus himself, because of, again, what it would cost them, um, which was their surrender. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 1 of people who know the truth but suppress it. He says in, in, in very heavy 
truthful language in Romans 1, Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The holy wrath of God. We're pretty familiar with the holy love and mercy of God. But when you read the Bible, you see that what makes God holy is also his wrath and his justice against evil. And we see the holy and just wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, it's rooted in a sin life that I have to repent of, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. In the Greek, it means they hold it down. I want, I want you to get in your head like trying to hold an inflatable underwater, trying to hold a beach ball underwater. You've got to actively ignore the truth. For what can be known of God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Like what excuse do these religious leaders have seeing Jesus there? Seeing those lives who have been transformed. God has shown it to them. Even, even those that weren't alive at that time. God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, are clearly perceived in creation ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that, he says this, so that we, or those who ignore the truth of God, the idea here is not that they don't know, but they don't want to know. He says, you're without excuse if that's the case. For although, although they knew God, they knew the truth, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is a commentary on Mark 11. Now, I want to say again, Maybe you're here today and you're like, I genuinely want to know. And you're like, I genuinely don't know. You're like, I, I don't know who God is. I don't know if there's a reason for my life. I don't know if heaven's real. I don't know if, you know, is the Bible authoritative truth from God? I, I don't know. I want to just give you, if that's you today, I want to just give you an invitation and a promise. Jesus is the one who said it. I'm just delivering it like a mailman. Here's what Jesus said. He said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. J Jesus says this, if you go on a journey to explore his truth with a willing and open heart, in other words, if you want to know, you can, and you will know the truth. And the truth of Jesus, the truth of who you are in him, the truth of who God is towards you, the truth will change your life. I'm telling you, our sinful hearts resist the truth. And that's because there's a spiritual enemy that doesn't want you to receive the gift that the truth has for you. The truth will set you free. If you will soften your heart, if you'll come to Jesus, stop suppressing what you know to be true. The truth is there, truth is there to save you. The truth is there to rescue you. The truth is there for you to have eternal life. The truth is there for you to know who you are. The truth is there for you to know God. The truth will set you free. If, if you abide in his word, if you sincerely explore the truth of scripture and Jesus' claims with an open and willing heart, you will, you will find it. Conversely, listen closely. Let me say it this way. If you want to know the truth, you will. If you don't want to, you won't. If you want to, you will. If you don't want to. We're not talking about what is true. We're talking about whether or not you want it to be true. If you don't want God's truth to be truth, it won't be. And you, like the Pharisees, can, can be willfully blind. I mean, this is a sad thing because there, there is such a thing as spiritual blindness. 
Paul says that, that it's the, if our gospel, to, to many people, the gospel, it's, it's, um, it's foolishness to some people, and it's because their eyes are, are been blinded by the God of this age, and they can't, they're blinded in their sin to see the truth. And that's, that's, a, that's enough blindness for one person to deal with. Willful blindness, it's like putting your hands over already blind eyes. Do you know what I'm saying? That Jesus wants to open. And, and so notice the invitation and notice the tragedy of this story. At the end of the day, you have a bunch of people who are unwilling to receive Jesus because it costs them their position. The truth will cost you. It will cost you the lies you've been living. It will cost you the life you've been living. It will cost you like whatever life you've built upon your own truth. Do you know what I'm saying? It will cost you, but, but what you earn for the cost is greater than anything you lose. What you earn for the cost of truth is greater than anything you may lose. Jesus closes this out with a parable to these men. Did you see this parable? This is an incredible parable. By the way, the rest of chapter 12, we're going to look at it next week and the week after, is Jesus just dueling with the Pharisees. Like you think after this, they would just kind of hang their heads down and go home. <laughs> Guys, it's time to go home, okay? We have failed, all right? But they are, you know, putting up a fight. They're, pu they're putting up a losing battle here. And Jesus, we, we see the heart of Jesus broken for these people that are rejecting him here. There's two responses to Jesus. You receive him or you reject him. And you see people here rejecting him, willfully rejecting him because of what it costs. So he tells a parable. He goes, let, let me explain it to you. Let me explain what's going on here through a story. Jesus is great, uh, a great storyteller. He says, a man planted a vineyard and, and set a hedge around it. It's pictured in your mind. Landscape of Israel. Beautiful, a vineyard there. Hedges around it. Dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. It's going to be a source of joy and good wine for many people. Everyone's happy about this vineyard. And this is common in that day. You build a vineyard and then you lease it to vine dressers. All right? This is, a, this is an entre entrepreneurial man. Gets the thing going, hands it off, and he's going to make his uh, passive income off this, uh, this vineyard. And he leases it to some vine dressers. Vine dressers would be those that would come in, and they, they weren't the owners of the vineyard, but they would come in and they would take up residence, and they would, their job was to care for them. They were stewards. They would care for it. They would make a profit off of it. And the owner of the vineyard, as they would work it, would get his portion, his commission. Um, let me stop and say, Jesus is, in this parable, Jesus is, is uh, portraying a metaphor. Often Jesus speaks in metaphors. We, we looked a couple weeks ago. Was it last week, actually? Last week at the fig tree, right? The fig tree was a metaphor for Israel. This is another metaphor for Israel. Isaiah 5 is uh, a passage where, where God speaks to Israel as a vineyard. He uses the metaphor in, in that he, he sought to brought salvation to the whole world through Israel, his people. The language of Isaiah 5 is it's like a man planting a vineyard to bring forth fruit. And Isaiah 5 is a really sad story where he's like, I planted this vineyard, I came back, and there was no fruit. So this is a picture of Israel. The vine dressers are the spiritual leaders. They're not the owners. No man owns the people of God except Jesus. These are the servants that are there to faithfully steward the vineyard, to work for the owner, to give him his portion. And these are the spiritual leaders. Um, 
So in this context, those people that are opposing him, those spiritual, that's who he's talking to. You're the vine dressers. Here's what Jesus says. Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers. This man who started the vineyard, at vintage time, it's time to reap the rewards of um, the, the, the fruit of the vine. About to go send my servant. He's going to bring me back some, some Pinot Noir from this beautiful vineyard. Some nice stuff. Maybe a Beaujolais. I don't know. All right? But nonetheless, it says he sent him that he might receive some of the fruit of the vine dressers. Now, notice when he comes, they take him and they beat him and they send him away empty-handed. So this guy comes back. He's all beaten up. He's like, I don't have any, I, I don't have any fruit. I just have a black eye. I'm back. Okay. And so they sent, this is interesting, and this is a parable. It never really happened. Okay. And he sent to them another servant. Now, this didn't really happen, but if it did, it's like funny like, to think the second servant's like, wait, I got to go there now too? Is everything, do I get a gun or something? Like, what's, okay. And at him, they threw stones and they wounded him in the head and they sent him away shamefully treated. So notice that the, the response, this is usually how rejection manifests. It's light and then it's greater, then it's greater, then it's greater. Hostility increases for a stubborn heart. So, so, so notice that the consequence is getting worse and worse. And then they sent another. And him they also killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Jesus is speaking to the history of God's people, who God faithfully sent servants to, who God faithfully sent prophets to. And what did Israel do with their own prophets? Well, throughout her history, they killed them. They crucified them. I mean, this is what God is speaking to. I've sent you all these different, these different servants, and this is how you've... The idea there is you've just rejected them. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent them to him. Him to them, excuse me. Saying, at last, they'll respect my son. I mean, this isn't like hard Bible interpretation to know that what Jesus is talking about here, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only beloved begotten son. The word beloved there is his agape son in the Greek okay, well, I've sent all these different prophets and they've done nothing but reject the voices of truth that have come into their lives. I'll send the embodiment of truth himself, the word made flesh, my beloved son, full of grace and truth. He'll come into the world and surely, if they've rejected these, they'll at least respect him. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And that's, what it tells us happened. They took him and they killed him and they cast him out of the vineyard as Jesus is crucified outside of the city. They cast him out. They took him and they killed him. Jesus says, therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Jesus is really honest about coming judgment for this rejection. There's not, you know, another option than Jesus, guys. He is the way, the truth, and the life. To reject him is to reject God. There's not another Savior coming. There's not another plan for those who reject Jesus. And it speaks here of, of, of the real future of those who willfully blind themselves to the truth and willfully reject the Lord. And, and Jesus says this, this is, by the way, so undercover boss of Jesus to say this to experts in the law. He goes, he goes you, well, you don't read your Bible? He goes, well, you don't, read, you don't ever read the scripture? You ever read the Bible? Hey, how's your Bible? Dusty, right? This is amazing. 
He says, haven't you read the Bible? He goes, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous. It's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus quotes right from the same psalm that we looked at when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, Psalm 118. And there's a psalm there that, that projected the future where a prophet would come, the stone would come, and this stone would be rejected by the people. But this wasn't a stone to be rejected because this was the precious stone that God has selected to be the cornerstone of humanity, to be the cornerstone of our salvation. We sang it on the way in. To be the, like, the idea here is, here's what Paul says. A cornerstone was, was the foundational stone by which you built every other foundational structure upon. It was that cornerstone that was the, the point of reference for everything else. The idea there is it's the foundation, the only true foundation. Any other cornerstone is going to lead you astray. It's going to be shifting sand. It's going to be a broken foundation. But God has given us in the person of Jesus, like this is what's said, because this is what they're rejecting. They're rejecting a foundation for their life to build on. I'm giving you Jesus. And Paul says there's no other foundation that anyone can lay except Jesus. He's the one true foundation. He's the one true cornerstone. He's the one to build your whole life upon. And this is the one that they've rejected, but this is the one that God has selected. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation of any and all true life. Jesus and Jesus alone is the foundation of anyone's life, of a church, of a community, of people. And this is a sad result. And we see a contrast here as we close. They sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the multitude. For they knew that he had spoken this parable against them, so they left and went away. They didn't throw themselves onto the cornerstone. They didn't surrender their lives and their positions to Jesus to receive the gifts of all that he came to be and give them. They rejected him. They rejected him. And, and um, th this, at the end of the day, is the dividing line for all of humanity. Those who receive the Son and those who don't. Those who reject Him and those who adore Him. Those who walk away from Him and those who cast themselves at His feet. Say, Lord, I am nothing without you. I want to build my life upon your foundation. I'll invite the band to come up here as we close out. Peter alludes to this. I want you to see this in 1 Peter 2. He's speaking to the church and he says, here, here's us today. We come to Jesus as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Here's Jesus. You also, you and I, we're living stones. It's a, it's a picture here. And we're being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. Have you found how precious Jesus is as a cornerstone in your life? Have you found that yet? Have you found that there's no other salvation under any other name except Jesus? Have you found that when you surrender to the truth, it doesn't hurt you, it saves you? Have you found that Jesus is the only foundation, the true foundation, rejected by man but chosen by God? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of Jesus. And for the Christian, um, you know, 
when I think about this, this message here, this passage, you have two kinds of people, people who are saying no to Jesus, and Peter describes a person saying yes. And I think this is a great description of, of the Christian life. I mean, first and foremost, the gospel is this, that every single human has naturally said no to God. This is our nature. Through sin, we have naturally said no, God. Or maybe, maybe God, right? I want a little bit. But the nature of that no is brokenness. We've separated ourselves from God. The gospel is that Jesus said yes to the Father. Jesus gives himself to the Father as an offering to save you and I who say no. And he stirs our heart and, and we go, life is better when I say yes to you, Jesus. When I say yes to you being my Savior and not me. When I say yes to you being my moral compass and my guide and not me. When I say yes to you and your truth and not my ideas. That's a Christian. I just... I'm someone that recognizes saying yes to Jesus is always the better option. Him being the cornerstone is the only foundation. So I want to just have you ask yourself this morning, first and foremost, if you're not a Christian, are you ready to say yes to Jesus? And here's why you can, because he said yes to you. He loves you. He died for you to save you, to rescue you from your sin. And all you have to do today is just say yes to him. Say yes to the sacrifice he made for your sin. Say yes to his love that's just trying to flow into your life like a waterfall. Just say yes to the inevitable. That he's God and he's good and he loves you. There's even a little prayer here in this bulletin during the song. You can look at it, pray it. Come up, with, pray with, come up and pray with someone after service. And then also to the follower of Jesus, let me ask you this. This morning, as you look at your life, where do you need to say yes to Jesus? Where do you need to say yes to Jesus? Is there any area of your life where you are, what the Bible says, quenching his spirit? He's saying, say yes to this, say yes. And you're going, no, not now, not yet. I'm not sure. Can I just exhort you in love and just say, listen, say yes to Jesus. Just say yes to him, whatever that yes is. It might be saying yes to Jesus with your time. Saying yes to Jesus with your priorities. Maybe it's saying yes to Jesus in your marriage. Saying yes to Jesus with your temptations. Receive Jesus. Say yes to him even in your trials. Say yes to Jesus in your pain. Say yes to Jesus, even in your joy. Say, Jesus, this is from you. This is, a, this is a reputation. This is a testimony that the church has. We want to be those that just say yes to Jesus. For he's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. Amen.